Hi, Greg Perry, the historic preservationist. Uh, we're continuing with our colonial home building series. So last time we were uh, getting engaged with shingles, um, how to cut shingles from, uh, you know, chunks of billets, splitting, uh, tapering, and things like that. Um, so we're gonna we're gonna move on to the shingling hatchet now. The early thatch roofs needed no special tools such as this, the shingling hatchet, when wooden shingles became popular. The flat-sided hatchet was developed for hewing straight and square edges. It worked much like a broad axe. Shingles could be trimmed and divided on the roof. Upended, the hammer could drive the shingle nail. The wrist thong kept the hatchet from tumbling around the ground below. The now familiar claw atop the pole or the notched blade were unknown to the 18th century builder. Not until about 1830, when cut nails had become plentiful, were the nail pullers added to the shingling hatchet. Um, so in the beginning, the, the, uh, the, the shingling hatchet was very dainty. But then it was found that it could be used for, uh, for, for multi-uses, and they added weight to it, about five additional ounces. Um, so just with a few chops of the shingling hatchet could trim and square the, the edges of bark. So sometimes on, you know, on uh, the shingles when they come in or when you're, when you're cutting, you have the bark on the outside. So just a few, few chops and boom, the, uh, the bark is off. So since shingles wider than seven or eight inches would swell considerably when wet, they expanded toward their neighbors. When I say neighbors, they're the, the shingle next door and buckled. Therefore, shingles of larger sizes would be split in half. So it's, it's always good when you're uh, doing historic preservation or on a true, a true period house, which I've, obviously these shingles wouldn't exist anymore because... Uh, shingles have, uh, these cedar shingles have, uh, or shakes have a shelf life of about 100 years. So the, the feather end of the, sh of the shingle, which is going to be the thinner end of the taper, um, might well split when driven, when you drive the nail home. So seasoned shingles were less apt to split than those of green newly cut wood. It was therefore prudent to use a gimlet or a wedge-shaped nail. So a gimlet is a, something like a screwdriver to start the hole, so you wouldn't tend on uh, splitting that feather edge of the shingle. So this, uh, the gimlet usually has a spoon bit affair on it early on, but today it's more of a, a drill or screw type. This mini-sized auger had a half cylindrical body with sharpened edges. It ended with a rounded or pointed nose to start the hole without wondering. The nose first forced the wood fibers apart and then trimmed out the hole with the cutting edge. A nail could then be driven in without splitting the shingle apart. Um, and you may recall that um, the, the three purlin to refer to framing colonial roofs. So three type purlin affairs. Uh, we were at a... Uh, I was with the, uh, so the, the, uh, the members of uh, Peachfields up in Burlington a couple of days ago and um, just commenting, looking at the roof, and they've had a local contractor, you know, either, either out of Mount Holly, uh, New Jersey, or out of Burlington, and, and I asked when the roof was put on, and 
and uh, you know the director said yada yada this company did it and and I said well they don't know what they're doing because as I looked up the shakes on the roof had, were curling up and the roof was only put on seven years ago so this indicates that somebody does not know what the hell they're doing and either that or they're scamming the clients so the seven years ago they put a roof on peach fields <clears throat> up in uh, Burlington County the historical museum and they actually put it over um, uh, rafters with support purlins, but they were total support purlins. There was no no air gaps in between. And whenever you're putting these uh, perpendicular purlins to the rafters, you need air spaces. Otherwise, the shingles are going to um, have free flow of ambient air on the outside, but not on the inside. So they're going to have real issues in the next four to five years on this uh, on this building. So by the early 1700s, pit saws and sawmills were turning out boards in great plenty. Rejects with splits or knots could be used as outside sheathing. Nails to the frame before being covered with shingles or clabbers. They gave added insulation and weatherproofing. The old thatching purlins faded into history. But if you, if you were doing a traditional restoration on a roof, you are going to use the old thatching purlin type construction. So let's talk a little bit about eaves. So we're talking about the purlins, we're talking about the shingles, how to cut them, how to produce them, and how to nail them down. It always been prudent to extend the roof line a, a foot or so to protect the siding below. Still, those unfaced eaves just wouldn't do once the colonies became more affluent. By extending the girt, girt over the front plate, a second plate could then be added to support the rafter feet. Once boxed in and embellished with moldings, the homestead took in a more elegant classical look. But such niche niceties would have to wait until the roof was shingled and the siding protected, protected with weatherboards. Um, so laying the shingles, let's talk about how we lay these shingles now. The exposed weather face was one-third the length of the shingle. Therefore, at any one place, there would be three thicknesses of shingles. A 24-inch long shingle would have eight inches exposed and the remainder covered by the next laid row. Nails were scarce. And remember, the nails were, and hardware was the most expensive commodity going on. And expensive. Dwellings that had outlived their usefulness were frequently burned so that the nails could be resalvaged. A single nail would be used to position each shingle in its row. The next row that overlapped, the one below, would be nailed in the same way, giving each shingle the holding power of two nails for the price of one. The following progression of shingling may make this thrifty carpentry a bit clearer. So when, when, when shingling, each, each shingle borrowed a nail from its overlying neighbor in addition to its own placement nail, which again is a great thing. Chalk lines were used to lay straight lines of shingles. Um, you could create a tool uh, out of wood uh, for lining up shingles also. The, the double row of eave shingles extended beyond the sheathing boards to the twine guideline. So at the, the base or overhang of the roof, you would have had triple shingles um, just, just to get a good buildup for rain runoff. Every shingle covered the gap between the two shingles beneath it. 
For seasoned shingles, the space was a quarter inch to allow for any swelling when generally any, any nail would be placed one and a half inches from the edge. The shingle border to be protected by the overlying shingle. And it's important to have these gaps of at least a quarter inch or maybe three eighths of an inch between shingles and each of the neighbors. Because on this roof we were talking about the other day at Peachfields, these bloody shingles were, were tight. And what's going to happen is they're all going to expand when, when rained on and it's going to push all the material over the edge of uh, both sides of the dwelling. And what eventually happens is all the nails become loose from all this back and forth pressure of the expansion contraction. Early colonials extended the shingles on the weather side of the roof. Since exposed nails would rust, the top rows of shingles were pegged. So what I'm saying there is if you look at a lot of um, dwellings who were have been re-roofed re to period uh, specifications, you'll see one side of the roof that was on the uh, the weather side, the shingles will protrude up maybe an inch, two, three inches above the uh, above the roof line at the peak. Okay. Um, and that final, the final course of shingles on the opposite side of the weather side were pegged. They were pegged with, uh, you know, miniature tree nails and not nails because the nails would rust. They would be exposed as opposed to all the other nails in the entire roof that were under uh, a preceding type of shingle. So let's, let's talk about weatherboards or clapboard as, as some of us know it. The half-turned English house had real transplanting problems on this side of the Atlantic. The driving storms had underscored the need for sturdy wooden shingles rather than the traditional thatch. The clay and chopped straw filling between the supporting timber was no better. The element soon cracked and otherwise tormented the filler until it was clear that an, an outer protective covering was a must. Clavers were the answer. So in the early houses, you know, going back into, uh, you know, the early 1600s, late 1500s, people would build a frame and they put wattle and daub, which was clay and straw in between. And it would dry, but when you had hard driving rain, it would actually moisten the clay, the walls would fail, they'd fall over, they'd leak. So they, they had to come up with weatherboards to protect this. And then the wattle and daub or the clay and straw would become more of just an insulator and sound deadener on the inside of the walls. Clapboards. The word came from the German word clapper. Clapper meaning the clap and holt meant wood and referred to the ribbed oak lengths that would be worked onto barrel staves. The colonists took the idea and ran with it. Um, a lot of these, this clapper was cut out of lengths of white oak trunk, were split into quarters with a fro. Each was halved again and again to produce the best thickness as with shingles. The heartwood and sapwood were trimmed with a hatchet, and this would have been clabbered. So the early clabber was done out of oak, but can you imagine doing 12 and 14 foot lengths out of oak? Out of green oak is one thing, but I can't imagine even getting a, having a 20% or 30% loss of wood or a hardening up of the wood. It would be uh, nearly impossible. So eventually, um, the oak, I'm sure, became too laborious, and they switched over to uh, cedar and, and or pine or Douglas fir. Clabbers were the, the big brothers of the shingle family for much of the 17th century. They were nailed to the non-weight-bearing studs that spanned the old clay and straw spaces between the supporting timber. Since the studs were usually placed in two feet apart, 
the rive clapboards which span a distance of either four or six feet. Early on, white oak was popular along with the occasional use of white pine and cedar, as we just said. So to, in order to split these um, with the taper on them, so remember the clapboards are like a shingle, they have a taper, and the, uh, the thin side is, is, is mounted up and nailed into the feather side. So all the same, although the same fro and maul were used in a like way for both clabbered and shingles, the longer length of the clapboard called for a more practiced hand. I mean, these guys were, were specialists in, in going with the grain and producing a consistent parallel piece. It was nothing more than a, the riving break was nothing more than a forked limb of a felled tree raised to the horizontal by sturdy cross sticks within the fork. The riving brake could be raised by bringing the cross sticks closer together and nearer to the base of the fork. The lower the sticks were spread and moved away from the base. If a split began to run off to one side, getting out of parallel, it would continue to do so as the fro was twisted. The thinner side would bend more, stretch its fibers, and become the path of least resistance. To correct the way the, the, the wood would split, the thicker half was placed downward in the riving brake and then turned to and fro. The split would drift to the thicker half. The hand pressure was released as the wood separated down its center. Before riving either half into thinner halves, the future clabber was inverted to split from the opposite end to even out any previous drifting. So the, the nailing the rived clabber these early clabbers averaged five inches wide with, with four inches of weathered or exposed surface. The ends were beveled to a single nail, secured two ends into a single stud. So they were, that was the riving of clabbers. That was very early. So now let's fleet ahead to the early 1700s. So we're, let's talk about sawn clabbers. So by the early 1700s, sawmills were turning out quantities of sawn clappers that ran the full length of the log. Some of this could exceed 20 feet. Throughout the century, the builder had four types to consider. The trend toward an undersheathing of boards. and um, So we would have an undersheathing with uh, a 45 degree angle. That was one type. The other type was a feathered clapper, which were nailed to a board undersheathing. And this was most favored. And pretty much what we see today in vinyl siding, that, that look. Um, the third was, was ordinary boards, just boards that were parallel and they were overlapped and typically would have a bead to the bottom, so no feathering at all. And the fourth, um, a rabbit held the overleaf, uh, overlapped um, sideboard to the edges of the studding. So we have four type of clappers, but the most popular would have been the feathered. So there was a, a trick to sawing a clapper that was wedge-shaped rather than oblong on cross-section. The side slabs, so you take your log and you cut, the side slabs were cut off at the sawmill or saw pit. So the log was then turned and a series of saw cuts were made just short of the opposite end. So just imagine making cuts through the whole log just short of the one end. With the uncut butt holding the slotted log together, the log was tilted with a wedge and vertical cuts on the di diagonal then gave feathered boards. The clabbers were released by sawing off the unwanted end.
So we're going to interject a little bit here about the uh, uh, a new tool, uh, the hand plane. So, I mean, for all this, we needed hand planes at this point in time just to, uh, to do some smoothing, some truing of, of flat surfaces and edges. So we're going to start our uh, introduction into this type of tool, early tool, the jack plane. Old timers called this much used tool as a four plane and with, with pretty good reason. The convex cutting edge of the iron could plow off an unwanted problems as clabbered saw marks before any, any finished planing. So this was like the roughing plane to get the hull and hardcore saw marks off. Being, being a convex shaver, the gently sloped path it left behind was pleasing to the eye and the touch. Running one's hand over the um, hand plane bottom of the 18th century colonial drawer or table should prove that point immensely. Usually the jack plane planed clabbers were usually smooth enough and need no further finish work. So this was giving us a, a slight, not a flat total flat plane surface, but a slight bend in it. And uh, a lot of these jack planes were used for roughing out. They were used for like um, debarking heavy saw marks and actually taking bark off of, uh, off of timber. So. So, so the jack or four plane was moderately long between 12 and 18 inches and spanned enough surface to shave the, the work level. The two and a half to three inch wide blade could clean off irregularities in quite the hurry. And, uh, you know, very simple. There's a, there's a wedge to uh, be knocked in or out to control the, the, the depth of the, uh, the blade. The wide throat held the convex plane iron and the wedge that locked it in place. The throat also provided an easy escape for the thick and lengthy shavings Many a colonial youngster played dress-up, wearing the wooden curls to imitate the powdered hairdos of the day. To remove the wedges so that the iron could be sharpened or its height be adjusted, the front or back was tapped with a wooden mallet. The vibration from the blows against the end grain loosened the iron without damaging the wooden plain stock itself. Siding uh, Side Lights there was a notable exception to the clabbering of the post and beam dwelling. The Long Island Dutch had expressed their individualism with gracefully extending eaves. They then extended the roofing shingles down to cover the siding. Such coverings gave a pleasing effect that was not lost on their neighbors. Soon many colonists in New Jersey and New York along the Connecticut shoreline, in addition along the Connecticut shoreline, um, and actually up to Cape Cod sometimes, and the shore islands follow this example. Today it would be hard to imagine a homey Cape Cod homestead not being sided with this weathered gray shingles. So you find that a bit at the Jersey Shore, but much, much more on Cape Cod. So um, let's talk a little bit about surfacing the studs. Um, you know, so we're putting the studs up once our timber frame skeleton is complete. Since the air between the posts and beams made a poor nailing surface, Studs were on a regular basis spaced for that purpose. They were relatively small posts, usually no more than three inches square on section. Each was separated from its neighbors by 24 inches on center. Studs were, were non-weight bearing and were inverted between the sill and the beam with single joints. Each had to be flush with the outer timber faces of the frame. First, the tenon of the stud was inserted into a sill mortise. Then the beveled top was snugged in 
into a wedge-shaped slot in the beam. Uh, the sides of the mortise lap were sawn against the match the, to match the angle and the beveled stud end. Then the wood between the chiseled free and a nail or two were driven at the top and so, to secure it. The other studs on the outside, sheathing boards, and the inside plastering and lathing. So once all the studs were up, the outside gets sheathing or the clabbered, and the inside gets lathing. And sometimes you would actually put... Uh, you know, uh, wool of uh, sheep inside for insulation, or wattle and daub sometimes. So it, it all depends. Um, so as we, I said earlier, I mean, there's, there's, uh, I've seen many in some antique shops, uh, clabbered gauges. So you can cut a gauge. So a, a clabbered gauge scored a line on each clabbered. The bottom edge of the overlapping board was lined up with the score lines on the previous clabbered row to give the, the same weather exposure. So this wasn't guesswork of the eye, and all of a sudden you look down and your your lines are well out of whack. You would use this as a somewhat of a marking gauge, um, and you could have a, uh, a kind of an all-shaped pin in there or a nail to do a scratch, or you could actually uh, probably jury-rig some type of piece of lead to give a pencil effect or drawing. Yeah, so, so uh, by the late 1600s, sawmills were converting large logs into affordable quantities of boards. Builders began sheathing the entire framework with split and knotty boards that wouldn't do, do the finish work any justice. The same up and down saws were turning out saw and pine and cedar clapboards in bulk and of considerable length. After slicking off the, the saw marks with the jack plane, the clapboards were set aside until the trim boards for the doors, windows, and corners were in place. So let's go back. So in the late 1600s, sawmills are actually stocking various of the four types of clabber we talked about in the colonies. So they're actually stocking it. So um, a pretty amazing stuff. So hence the lumber yard was born. But once you, your clabber was, um, was manufactured or, or brought, bought and brought, pulled the site, you needed to do the, uh, the framework around all your sash and your door frames first. And then your clabber meets that. You don't clabber it first and then frame out the windows. Um, so you were doing the, the window surrounds, door surrounds, and then the clabber. And, and also by the late 1600s, hinged oak casement windows have been replaced with diamond-shaped panes with double-hung pine sash. The upper sash was fixed in place, but the lower sash was meant to slide up and down, as it does today. Each standard size determined the size of the window frame. As a rule, all sashes were four lights or panes wide. However, many made up the top and bottom length. The earliest windows were eight over 12, eight lights in the upper sash and 12 in the lower sash, or 12 over eight, or at times 12 over 12. It wasn't, it wasn't long before this usual arrangement became 12 over 12, as we just said, for the remainder of the colonial period. So you would have been more stylish to have 12 over 12, um, probably going into the 1750s in, uh, you know, in America. So, uh, so this is just taking us a little bit further down the line of colonial home building. Um, next, we're going to talk about, uh, not in this episode, but we're going to talk about architectural styles. Um, we're going to get into um, more versatile planes that you're used um, for basic house writing. 
And then we're going to talk about uh, molding planes, you know, tongue and groove and, and, and things of that sort. And basic types of molding going back into uh, Greece some 2,000 years ago that, uh, you know, Corinthian capitals, Corinthian columns, and, and what things are based off of the golden mean. And we're going to also explain how to build a fr framing, a, a frame and panel uh, arrangement, whether it was for... Uh, you know, doing frame and panel in, in your dining room, your living room, or a frame and panel door, a frame and panel, wherever you needed it. So how to raise a panel and how to frame it. And a little bit of talk about doorways and nails. So uh, Greg Perry, the historic preservationist, uh, we're signing off today on uh, colonial home building.